Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. Teenagers can be thought of as selfish, spoiled, lazy, and irresponsible. The Hollywood stereotypical angsty teenager loves to drink, skip school, and rebel in any way possible. If we're honest with ourselves though, I think we can all agree that teenagers are hard. Almost adults with no control over their own lives. Most teenagers make at least a few bad choices along the way. But in today's case, we're going to tell you about some choices they could never come back from. Early in the morning on October 2nd, 2017 in Medford, Oregon, 50-year-old Aaron Fryer was asleep on his living room couch when he was startled awake by a bang. One of his three daughters, Ellen, who went by Ellie, apologized for waking him, explaining that she was trying to get to the bathroom and kicked a trash can. He reminded her of the break-in attempt the night before and that she's lucky he didn't think she was an intruder. Ellie went back to her room and Aaron laid back down and went back to sleep. An hour later, the baseball bat he kept by the front door for protection came crashing down on his head. He woke up long enough to yell, who the fuck is there, before the bat came down again and again and again. Once he was dead, one of the intruders pulled Aaron's car around to the front door while the other wrapped his body in a blanket and his head in a towel to try and contain the blood. The two carried Aaron's body to the car and shoved him into the trunk while a third accomplice did their best to clean up the blood, straighten up around the house, and steal all the cash from Aaron's wallet. They all piled into the victim's car and a few hours later dumped his body and the weapons down a dirt embankment. Then they drove halfway back to the crime scene before abandoning the car in a residential neighborhood. Shortly after the murder, Aaron's neighbor called police and requested a wellness check for the family. They heard unusual sounds coming from the house, and Aaron isn't the type to drive off in a hurry in the middle of the night like that. Police knocked and no one seemed to be home, but they saw definite signs of a disturbance. Inside the house, it was obvious something horrible had happened. Shortly before 10 a.m. that morning, police found Aaron's missing car, and they didn't have to look far to find their suspects. Less than five miles from Aaron's house and only two miles from the abandoned car, police found Aaron's 15-year-old daughter, Ellie, and her 19-year-old boyfriend, Gavin, and their 22-year-old friend, Russell, walking down the street together. Damn, they couldn't have taken a second car? Did they really think walking was going to get them out of sight faster? And why drive back to the area of your crime? Not super well thought out. I have so many questions, starting with, what was the reason? (laughs) All three were arrested and put in separate rooms for interrogation. Ellie refused to answer any of the detective's questions at first. She was read her Miranda rights and told she didn't have to talk, but she was required to give them her name. In Oregon, you're required by law to give your name and address if you're arrested. Ellie gave her name as Rain and described herself as an 18-year-old who graduated from high school with honors. She was left alone in the room for a while where she sat emotionless, looking, if anything, bored. When Detective Stephanie Smith first entered the interrogation room, Ellie flipped a switch and put on her best scared little girl voice in an effort to manipulate the detective. Ellie started by pretending to be surprised and confused about why she was there at all. Detectives played along with her fake name and story and let her think her manipulation was working. Ellie insisted she intended to remain silent, but continued talking anyway. (laughs) She said she had gone for a walk alone that morning when she ran into two friends. 
An hour into the conversation, Detective Smith informed Ellie that they knew she wasn't an 18-year-old graduate, but rather a 15-year-old sophomore named Ellie Fryer. She gave up the RAIN Act at that point, but pretended to have no idea her father was dead. She tried to look distraught, especially when she learned her dog, Sparklebeak, was no longer at the house when police discovered the crime scene. She ignored some of the questions entirely, just staring off into space, repeating, That's my baby. Where is my dog? I wish I could see this interrogation because she sounds like a dramatic hot mess. It's also giving me Amber Heard acting skills. (laughs) Totally. At least pretend to be more upset about your dad than your dog. Jeez. And I'm sure the lies continued. Oh, of course. She continued to lie to investigators for hours, telling them she wasn't dating either of the other suspects. Investigators confronted her with the statutory rape charges her father had filed against Gavin last spring, and she finally admitted that she was dating Gavin and her father didn't want her to be dating him. She claimed her dad even pulled a gun on him to keep him away from her. Throughout the interview, her story constantly changed. At one point, she claimed to be pregnant and asked for a hug from the detective, which was, of course, declined. She continuously choked on her water and complained about being tired. She would turn on and off the scared little girl voice whenever she thought it would help garner sympathy. After hours of interrogation, she was left alone with paper and crayons to draw with. Detectives were hoping her drawings could provide some sort of insight. Well, you give a child some crayons and paper, they're likely to draw something. Especially when they're bored. (laughs) She's 15, not five. But I'm sure crayons are safer for everyone in this situation. Yeah, agreed. So what did the guys have to say? Okay, so 22-year-old Russell Jones was cooperative and chatty from the beginning, but pretty open about his opinion that all cops were just high school bullies with badges. On the ride to the station, he talked the cops' ears off. He claimed to be in the protection industry, When asked what kind of protection he offered, he explained he mostly worked with girls 20 and younger, specifically working with people who were runaways, giving them places to hide and helping them get food and shelter. He figured they must have run away for a reason. His actual income was from disability checks in the amount of $735 a month. He told police he would lose his disability benefits if he was employed, so any work he did had to be under the table though he told them he never actually received any money for his protection services anyway. Once in the interrogation room, detectives asked Russell to sit down, to which he replied he would rather stand, but suggested the detectives sit down. The officer explained he wasn't allowed to sit unless Russell does, so they all sat down at the same time and began chatting. (laughs) Russell was very friendly and chatty during the conversation. An officer came in to bring Russell some french fries and asked to talk to the detective outside. This was the tactic to bore the suspect into letting his guard down when the detective returns. This wasn't going to work with Russell, though. He was definitely aware of the cameras recording him since he commented on them when he was first brought into the room. While eating fries, he began talking to himself. He commented on the fries, saying, These are actually nicer than the hospital ones. He stuck his pinky in one of the outlets in the wall and pretended to electrocute himself. He then said out loud, it wasn't really self-defense so much as defending her. Russell then began to act like some kind of supervillain. He would look straight into the camera, then dramatically switch to the other camera, saying, I don't care if you're a fed, I can still twist your little mind, with a maniacal grin on his face. 
He then said, don't piss me off, while staring menacingly into the camera. He then casually went back to eating his fries and talked to himself about how nice the officers were. After finishing his food, he went back to his supervillain frame of mind and started making demands. He said Ellie was under his protection and demanded she be released to him. He began gesturing on the table as though physically laying out evidence he had provided to them. He began making silly hand gestures and acting like he held all the power in the situation. Oh, this is sad. He's definitely mentally ill. There's no doubt about it. He really seems to just be entertaining himself in the videos. But yes, clearly something is going on. Either he's being completely honest or just fucking with them at this point. At one point, he asked, do you want to see a magic trick before waving his hand over the recording device and turning it off, then back on again? He continued making demands and gave them a time by which they had to set Ellie free. Looking at an imaginary watch on his wrist, he gave them exactly two hours to release Ellie and the other suspect to his custody. He then started making pig and donut jokes and attempting to sing pig-themed nursery rhymes, but he couldn't remember any of the words to any of them. He continued to play with the recording device, turning it on and off repeatedly. The more than three-hour interrogation recording of Russell entertaining himself is online and one of the most bizarre interrogation videos I've ever watched. When the investigators eventually returned to the room, they casually made a comment about the recorder being off, turned it back on, and got down to business. Despite his earlier theatrics, he was immediately cooperative once investigators were in the room. He explained he wasn't the murderer and told them that when he walked into Ellie's house and saw the bloody man, he ran to the bathroom to throw up. He also described feeling freaked out about driving around with a dead body in the trunk. Russell's diagnosis of bipolar disorder and autism made things way more complicated where he's concerned. While he showed no remorse for his involvement, it was unclear to investigators if he really understood the difference between right and wrong. He believed Ellie truly needed saving from her evil father based on what she had told him. He seemed to be struggling with the concept that killing him was wrong. Well, it sounds like he really thought her father was a bad man and that she needed saving. With his mental illness that seems like it's not being managed, it's easy to convince him that what he's doing is justified. I agree. It's possible he was easily manipulated and really thought he was the hero in this story. So what about the other guy, the boyfriend? Yeah, so 19-year-old Gavin McFarlane was the shortest interrogation since he put up no resistance and told police exactly what happened as soon as they asked. He calmly explained what they did and what the plan was. He even explained that the original plan involved chloroforming Ellie's two younger sisters before the murder so they wouldn't hear or see anything, but it turned out chloroform was hard to get off the internet. (laughs) Gavin was an unusual guy in general. He was described by his previous schoolmates as not exactly popular, but he got along with a lot of different groups of people. He was also known for his short temper and violent outbursts. This got worse at the age of 17 when he stopped taking his ADHD medication. The students at his high school whispered amongst themselves that if there was going to be a school shooter, he'd be the guy. The school had done several evaluations to determine if he was a risk to himself or others, but never took any action. He commented often about wanting to kill people and claimed it would be easy to get away with it, but no one took him seriously. Um, yeah. Okay, so anyone who talks about wanting to kill people in high school could very much be the next school shooter. I agree with that. But I don't know if it's something that's easy to get away with. 
And just to add to that, it's really sad that kids these days think they have to label someone at their school as the potential school shooter in general. It's so sad and scary that people saw this potential in him and shrugged it off like, yeah, he's that type of guy. I'd also like to know why he's into 15-year-old girls. Yeah, he was known as an edgy kid who was oddly secretive. Two separate classmates came forward claiming Gavin lived at their house with their family, but neither one knew about the other. He had a habit of hanging out in front of the local middle school to pick up girls, which his friends told him was creepy and not to do that anymore. Solid advice. He should have just took it. (laughs) It's possible that that's how he met Ellie. In the spring of 2017, Gavin was 19 and Ellie was 15. They had been dating for a year and sexually active for at least six months. When Aaron found out about Gavin's age, he called police and charged Gavin with statutory rape demanding police keep him away from his daughter. It was three months before he would have graduated high school, but the conviction caused Gavin to drop out of school, and he lost most of his friends when they found out about Ellie. When we come back, Sham will tell us what really happened that horrible October night. When Detective Smith returned to Ellie's interrogation, she was armed with the information given by her co-conspirators and was finally able to get Ellie to talk. She told investigators she originally planned to run away months earlier with her boyfriend, Gavin. They reached out to Russell, who was known to sometimes help girls run away. Ellie claims Russell was the one who brought up the idea of killing her father instead. Gavin was against the idea, but Ellie liked it. Gavin still wouldn't agree until Ellie told him that she was pregnant and convinced him it was the only way to protect their child and to be together as a family. She told investigators, and I quote, I kind of forced Gavin into this, end quote. Ellie claimed Russell went into the house with a machete, and later she saw it covered in dried blood. She also said he put something in the trunk, and she suspected her father was in there, but she didn't know. In her story, everything was Russell's idea, and he acted alone. She insisted she never had any idea what was going on. When they stopped on the remote road, she said that he got out alone and took the stuff out of the trunk alone. Investigators had a similar story from the men, but in their versions, Ellie played a much bigger role than she was letting on. They began to push her further on the areas they knew she was lying about, and that's when she turned the scared little girl voice back on. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah, right. She wants to pretend like it was all Russell, and she was just along for the ride. Whatever. He definitely sounds like the scapegoat in this situation. They know she's lying, so what excuse does she try next? Well, she claimed every night, whenever she went to sleep in the house, her father would come lay next to her and start masturbating. The detective asked if her father ever ejaculated, and she broke down in tears. She said that he had, and it got on her hands. She described going to the bathroom and scrubbing her hands repeatedly because of how dirty and ashamed she felt. When asked if she wanted some tissues, she said that she's fine and joked that her jacket was waterproof. Since everything she said up to that point was a lie, it's hard to know if this claim is true or not. Aaron's family and friends stand by him and say that he was an excellent father and loved his daughters more than anything. None of Ellie's claims against her father have been confirmed, but she did tell Gavin and Russell the same things months prior to the attack. She told them her father was an alcoholic and he was abusive to her emotionally and physically. She claims he frequently called her names and hit her on multiple occasions. She also claims that he was very rude and abusive to her about the way she ate since she was a vegetarian. Her accusations about Aaron's alleged abuse was the main motive behind Russell's suggestion of killing him instead. He believed Ellie's story and felt running away would only leave her younger sisters in harm's way. 
Ellie slipped in comments about her father being abusive throughout the entire interrogation, even when it had nothing to do with the questions being asked. Mm, That is really fucked up if it's true. But Ellie has already proven to be eager and willing to lie herself out of any situation. She could have made up that story to get Russell and Gavin to help her in the first place. I don't ever want to tell someone their trauma or abuse story isn't real or even partially real, but she seems like she lies about a lot of things. Did she continue her act of innocence to the end? Well, after five hours of interrogation, Ellie had opened up a little bit more about her involvement in the murder. When asked how she felt about driving around with her father's dead body in the trunk, she said it felt like an adrenaline rush. While the two men were dumping the body, she said she threw the bat high into the tree while enjoying nature. At the end of her interrogation, she mentioned she had information regarding minors that regularly smoke pot she would be willing to rat on. She was too naive to understand that kids smoking pot was nothing compared to murder charges and wouldn't get her a deal. Come on. This is where you can really see what a child she is here. When you commit murder, no one cares about the kids you know that smoke pot. And the police already know these kids are out here smoking the greens with or without your help, girl. (laughs) So true. Okay, so what's the real story then? Well, when you put together the information from all three confessions, you get a pretty clear picture of what really happened that night. Months prior to the murder, Ellie, Gavin, and Russell got together to plan out their crime. Police found a to-do list of sorts Russell had written in a childlike handwriting detailing all of their plans. It included things like get an RV, load RV, get stuff from storage unit, get Ellie, take out Mr. Fryer quietly, Go back to Mr. Fryer's for guns, guitars, Ellie's dog, alcohol. Take out my dad, Mariposa House, 5 p.m. Get items from Mariposa House. Get items to use from Gavin's house. Clearly, their plans included things that didn't come to pass, like getting an RV and murdering Russell's dad as well. Unfortunately, they did succeed at some of those nefarious to-do list items. On Sunday, October 1st of 2017, Gavin and Russell tried to break in to kill Aaron while Ellie was still at marching band competition, but they got there and they realized Aaron's girlfriend was with him. They aborted the mission and decided to try again later. The next night, on October 2nd, they arrived at Ellie's house around 1 a.m. She passed bags of her belongings out her bedroom window for the guys to load into her dad's car. Gavin then climbed in through the window to wait for the perfect time to strike. While they waited for Aaron to fall asleep, they talked about getting married and what their future would look like. As soon as they heard Aaron snoring, Ellie insisted they use the baseball bat to kill her father. Who makes a to-do list of their crimes? They're so casual about this whole plan. They should have been nervous, not dreaming about the future, minutes before killing someone. Yeah, this just goes to show it was definitely premeditated and at any point they could have stopped themselves. I agree. Okay, keep going. Gavin tiptoed out to the living room, but claimed not to see the bat. Ellie went to find it herself, stating that she would be really mad if it was there where she said it was. She gets the bat and shoves it into Gavin's hands, and then he went into the hall, but it was really dark, so he knocked down the trash can and retreated back to Ellie's room. She covered for him, saying that she was going to the bathroom, and Aaron fell back asleep again around 2.30 a.m. Gavin then walked out to the couch and started his assault. Aaron woke up momentarily and called out, but Gavin brought down the bat again and again and again until he was dead. While this was going on, Ellie gave Russell the signal to pull the car around and Gavin let him in through the front door. Russell walked into the house with the machete he had brought as a backup plan and immediately ran to the bathroom to throw up. 
Gavin and Russell wrapped up Aaron in a blanket and wrapped a towel around his neck to soak up the blood pouring from it. Gavin grabbed Aaron's legs and Russell grabbed his torso and together they put his body into the trunk while Ellie went back inside. She mopped up as much blood as she could with a towel, stole $40 from her dad's wallet, then went to say goodbye to her little sisters. She told them that she wouldn't be coming back and asked if they heard anything. They said that they heard dad say a bad word, which probably meant that they heard everything. Ellie then grabbed her dog, Sparkle Beak, and went out to their car. After dropping the bags and the dog off at one of the houses Gavin often crashed at, they went down the street to Walmart. At the store, Ellie bought makeup and hair dye, and Gavin can be seen on the security camera being silly and sticking his tongue out at one of the cameras. Next, they drove approximately 20 miles where Gavin and Russell dumped Aaron's body on the side of a dirt embankment. Ellie threw the bat and machete into a nearby tree, and the trio were off to run more errands. They drove back to town and ditched the car in a neighborhood only a few miles from Ellie's house. From there, they walked to the Social Security building so Russell could add Gavin as a payee to collect Russell's disability checks. Shortly after leaving the SSA building, they were surrounded walking down the sidewalk by police and arrested. Okay, see, Russell was so easily manipulated, he agreed to sign over all future disability checks to them. They set him up and planned to run off with his money while he took the fall. I mean, they didn't do well, but still, their plan is obvious. Aside from the fact they're leaving paper trails literally everywhere, karma would have eventually come for their asses because taking someone's only means to survive for your own fairy tale is pretty fucked up. Uh, yeah. Also, she took the dog with her, said goodbye to her sisters, and ran errands around town. Ellie was begging to get caught. Police could probably tell it was her from the minute they walked into the house. Case closed. Well, all three pled guilty in order to avoid the death penalty. Oregon has abolished the death penalty three times and reinstated only a few short years later, all three times, most recently in 1984. Though the last actual execution took place in 1962, and the last two governors vowed that no executions would take place while they were in office. In October of 2018, a year after the murder, Gavin pleaded guilty to murder, tampering with physical evidence, and criminal conspiracy to commit murder. In exchange for his testimony against Ellie, prosecutors dropped felony sexual assault, sexual abuse, and sodomy charges stemming from two other relationships with minors separate from Ellie. Gavin said very little during his hearing, aside from his soft-spoken statement of, I'm sorry, an indication that he'd like to, quote, take it back. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole until he has served at least 25 years. In January 2019, Ellie entered a guilty plea for conspiracy to commit murder and aggravated burglary. She was sentenced to 25 years to be served in a juvenile corrections facility until she turns 25, at which that point she would be transferred to an adult prison. Her sentences were broken down into 20 years for murder and 5 years for burglary, and the burglary charges can be erased for good behavior. Two other underage girls in addition to Ellie? Gavin is a full-on predator. Yeah, he's a creep for sure. I feel like those sentences are fair. They will both be in their 40s when they get out, and they can still make a life for themselves and turn things around. What about Russell, then? Russell was trickier because it was hard to tell if he actually knew the difference between right and wrong. He was evaluated to determine if he was fit to stand trial, and it was determined that he was fit and understood his crimes. In April 2021, he pled no contest to conspiracy to commit murder and first-degree attempted robbery. 
He was sentenced to 15 years in prison, and since no contest isn't an admission of guilt and is not a conviction, it cannot go into his criminal record and cannot be used against him in the future. Later, Russell changed his plea to guilty and received a reduced sentence of seven and a half years with possibility for parole after only three years being served. Aaron's sister Marie drove to Oregon from Nevada to be present at each and every hearing. She said while nothing will bring her brother back, she just hopes he gets justice through this case. She described her little brother as a kind and loving soul whose kids were his whole life. Aaron's girlfriend Michelle also spoke in court, saying the pain and terror Aaron must have felt in his last moments still keeps her up Mm -hmm. at night. Maybe seven years isn't long enough for his part in this. I feel so bad for Aaron's loved ones. They not only lost him, but Ellie too, really. Yeah, she may not have died, but her life is over. Do you think Ellie was the sophisticated mastermind these guys made her out to be? It's hard to say who manipulated who in this case. Ellie claimed to have a substantial motive behind her desire to murder her father with the allegations of abuse. Gavin was angry about the statutory rape charges and wanted to run away with Ellie. Russell was no angel either, though. Three years prior to Aaron's murder when Russell was 18, he was convicted for third-degree sexual assault. It was accompanied with a third-degree sodomy charge, which was dismissed as part of the plea deal, meaning the victim was under 16. Were Russell's intentions for helping young runaway girls innocent, or was he using it as a way to hunt for young victims? Uh, okay. I felt bad for Russell. But with the sexual assault history and a psychologist determining he did understand what he was doing, maybe that's right. Maybe his intentions weren't so pure. I mean, they're both predators for sure, but one is definitely more calculated than the other. True. And Gavin and Ellie brought Russell into this. He didn't seek them out and convince them or anything. Regardless of how Russell got involved, I think it's safe to say he wasn't the mastermind here. I mean, the part of the plan where Gavin was added as someone who could collect Russell's disability checks tells me this couple always intended for Russell to take the fall for the murder. He was the scapegoat all along. So, was Ellie manipulated by the charms of an older man into defying her father and it went too far? Or was Gavin dragged into the murder by a diabolical mastermind intent on gaining her freedom? Parasite, which is the murder of one's own parents, is the rarest type of murder in the United States at only 2%. Murdering the father or patricide has only happened in 186 cases. The vast majority of these are committed by males between the age of 18 to 30 with mental illness and often committed with a knife and with very little planning in advance. Either way, Ellie is a rare case of a daughter turning on her father. Parents have to make hard decisions to protect their kids all the time. Kids may not like being told no or being protected, but we hope someday they will understand. We may never know if Ellie's allegations of abuse were legitimate, but we do know her dad tried to protect her from a predator. In fact, Aaron died trying to protect his daughter. Unfortunately, in the end, he was the one who needed protection from her. Child Rescue Coalition is a nonprofit organization that rescues children from sexual abuse by building technology for law enforcement free of charge to track, arrest, and prosecute child predators. Their technology has improved the success rates of investigators and policing operations in the ongoing pursuit to identify, apprehend, and convict individuals and networks associated with child sexual exploitation. Their catalog of known abusers helps identify new and potential offenders while ranking the severity of predators to prevent real-time abuse. 
For every predator CRC helps law enforcement apprehend, they prevent between 50 and 150 children from being sexually abused. This technology has prevented the abuse of more than 690,000 children worldwide. To get involved, go to childrescuecoalition.org for more information. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. You can also find us on TikTok. Steph, what's our Conjure Tip of the Week? A Chrysopase Prom Stone is an amazing tool for increasing self-control and patience. It's an excellent crystal that can help you find more peace. It helps to clear away any feelings of irritability and restlessness that might accompany impatience as well. Holding the stone in your hand and rubbing your fingers across the smooth surface calms you down when you're feeling cranky and enables you to improve your self-control. This would be a good one to have your teenager hold once in a while. When they get worked up or feel like they're losing control, it may help them get it back and relax. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.